let's look at what was interesting. Well, it's interesting that they were using GAN-generated faces. It was interesting that they were using real people to write for them, but it's also interesting that it didn't work. And so not only do you have a much better network in place across the platforms and law enforcement and the research community who are looking out for this kind of stuff, you actually have a much more experienced press corps who are reporting on it and they know the kind of questions to answer and they know the kind of points to look for. And if you put all that together, it makes for a much healthier environment than we had four years ago or, or even a year ago. I'm Quinja Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 10th, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Ben Nimmo, the Director of Investigations at Graphica. Ben has come on the podcast before to discuss how he researches and identifies information operations. But this time, we invited him on to talk about one specific operation, a campaign linked to the internet research agency Troll Farm. Yes, that's the same Russian organization that Special Counsel Robert Mueller pinpointed as responsible for Russian efforts to interfere in the 2016 election on social media. They're still at it, and Graphica has just put out a report on an IRA-linked campaign that amplified content from a fake website designed to look like a left-wing news source. We discuss what Graphica found, how the IRA's tactics have changed since 2016, and whether the discovery of the network might represent the rarest of things in the disinformation beat. A good news story. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 10th. Ben Nimmo on the return of the Internet Research Agency. Uh, so welcome back to the podcast, Ben. Uh, we had you on previously to discuss your work at Graphica more broadly. And this time we asked you on because Graphica just unveiled a really interesting report on a network of fake social media accounts linked to the Internet Research Agency. So let's just start with the basics. What did you find? What happened was Facebook, with whom we have a partnership, came to us and said they'd had a tip-off from the FBI that the the FBI had found some internet research agency activity, not on Facebook, but elsewhere on the internet. Facebook then came to us with a few accounts to look at and asked us to do an independent investigation. So we started with a, a small set of Facebook accounts and two pages. And these pages were branded to a in inverted commas, media outlet called Peace Data. Peace Data uh, was based on a website of the same name, and it posed as a uh, a young, non-profit, progressive news outlet that was interested in human rights, abuse of power, conflicts, and posted a lot of content about uh, US foreign policy particularly. Uh, and some about politics and, and social developments in the United States and, and around the world. As we looked at it very quickly, it became apparent that this whole thing was a it was a sham. It was a front organization. Uh, so, for example, the Peace Data website had an About Us section, uh, which showed the profile pictures of, of three young people who were allegedly the managing editors of, of this outlet. And as soon as we looked at the profile pictures, we realized that they were all um, generated by AI. They were fake pictures. These were not people who were real. So we started looking at the website. We, we looked for the names of the alleged editors. We found 
traces of accounts on Twitter that had already been taken down. We found traces of a lot of activity on LinkedIn, which had already been taken down, but still survived in various online caches. And as we looked at the website, we realized that what had happened was this site, which was posting, uh, let's say, progressive-minded content on issues like human rights, poverty, inequality, the evils of American foreign policy, there were real people who were writing for it. The, the bylines were linked to Twitter accounts, occasionally of verified users, but, but demonstrably of real users. There were people who had existing writing careers. There were quite a lot of people who were freelance writers who appeared not to have been published anywhere else before, but, but were posting about their own articles on their own social media accounts. And so we realized that what we were looking at was a website that was being run by fake personas, but was then co-opting real people to write for it. Uh, And so we looked around some more and we found the traces of job ads on places like LinkedIn and Guru.com and Upwork, where this operation had posted ads for freelancers to come and write for them. And they'd offered anything from $75 to $250 per article. And as we looked at it, we, we also looked at the remaining traffic on Facebook. And we saw that on Facebook, you had accounts that, that Facebook had identified as belonging to this operation, which also had AI-generated profile pictures, which were amplifying piece data content. They said they were all managing editors or deputy managing editors at piece data. But what they were doing was they were taking the articles which these unwitting freelancers had written, but they were pinpoint placing them in certain groups to try and get them in front of certain audiences. So, for example, one particular persona that was run by the operation, had a fake profile picture, was repeatedly posting articles about social and political events in the United States, including about the election, but it was always posting them in groups with names like Demexit and the Progressive Party and the U.S. Democratic Socialists. It was very carefully targeting a left-wing audience. Quite a lot of the messaging was generically about issues of concern to progressives like inequality, homelessness, pollution. But in the mix, there were articles about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the claim that Biden and Harris are too far to the right and that the Democrats are moving too far to the right. And so true progressives should look at potentially another political option. And that really put this in the, in the same perspective as the Internet Research Agency operation back in 2016. Because we know that back in 2016, one of the things the IRA was trying to do was depress support for Hillary Clinton by targeting Bernie Sanders supporters and telling them, don't vote for Clinton, she's too far to the right. And what we were seeing here with Peace Data was the website was hiring real people to write its articles, but then it was trying to land them in front of very specific progressive audiences in the United States. And it looks like this was an attempt to steer left-wing voters further to the left, further away from the mainstream, and potentially to, to, to reduce support for the Biden-Harris campaign. So it, it sounds like from what you're saying, Ben, that in many ways, the strategy from what we now know the IRA was doing in 2016 has basically stayed more or less the same, but the tactics have been more refined. And I think two of the things I kind of want to zero in on that you were just talking about 
One is this use of AI-generated pictures for the profiles, and two, the use of locals to write stories who were uh, likely unwitting, I assume for the most part, and they were just getting paid to kind of write articles, and why not? And the first question on the AI-generated profile pictures, you said that you were able to detect pretty quickly that these were not real people. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you were able to do that? Because I think there's been a widespread concern that the quality of these kinds of uh, networks, the uh, generative adversarial networks that produce these kind of images, the AI images, are so advanced that we really can't tell anymore if it's real or it's not. So how were you able to detect that quickly? The first point, I think you're right that in, in the long run, there is real concern that, that GAN-generated profile pictures will become so convincing that you can't tell them by the naked eye. And in the long run, that's a concern. We need to talk about it. We need to work about, out how to do this. However, the technology just isn't quite there yet. and There are some giveaways that once you've looked at dozens of these profile pictures, you realize there's a pattern to them. And a few of the, the keys that you can look at, interestingly, the, um, the AI is, is pretty good at generating a face because actually there's not that much variation between human faces. Most people have two eyes and nose and mouth in roughly the same kind of alignment. But the backgrounds to photos are much, much more difficult because if you think about the range of different backgrounds against you which can be photographed, the variation is far wider than the range of different face alignments you can have. And so one of the giveaways of uh, an AI profile picture is actually to look at the background. And it'll always be out of focus. It'll normally be a mixture of greens and browns and greys. Sometimes it's as if the AI is trying to create a plant behind the person, but it hasn't actually been programmed how to make plants. And so you have the effect that, that behind this person's face, there is a strange, blurred, asymmetric image which doesn't quite make sense and the more you look at it the more you realize that that's just not right for example you might have somebody who's leaning against a gray wall but none of the lines is straight and none of the lines actually joins up and you realize that if that wall is really there then there's somebody who's standing against two walls which are joined in the middle and actually not built properly and they're probably about to fall down so one thing is to look at the backgrounds to these images and you'll see that they, they just don't pass muster um, another thing is that AI has great difficulty with symmetry because I, I think it's because it's designed to make human faces convincingly just slightly asymmetric, which works for a human face, but it doesn't work if the human face is meant to be wearing a pair of glasses. And if you see, for example, that one leg of the glasses looks like a Gucci leg and the other leg looks like a, an Armani leg. And so and two of these personas were... were portrayed as wearing glasses and you could you could look in you could you could zoom in on the glasses and you could see that actually at the at the two ends of the frame where the legs joined the frame it was clearly copied from two different pairs of glasses as it were mushed together in the middle and, and there's, there's no way anyone's going to design a pair of glasses like that so so that was a giveaway that this was ai generated um, and then the other classic tell which which still works at the moment is that the way these programs seem to work is that they start around the eyeballs. They'll put in the eyeballs first and then they'll build the face around it. 
uh, and the face can be rotated in many different ways, up, down, left, right, looking right, looking left. But what we found from experience is that if you take all these images and superimpose them on one another, and then you make them all opaque, then all the eyeballs line up. And you can do these wonderful stacks of almost ghost faces as you put in more and more photos on the stack. And as long as they're all aligned in square form, then you see that all the eyeballs line up. And that's such a common pattern across all these faces that, that once you've looked at a few operations like this, it actually becomes a signal that you're looking at a fake operation because there's something very specific about the way these profile pictures are, are created. Um, and particularly if you see them en masse, you see six or seven profile pictures in a row and they all have the eyes in exactly the same place in the photo. Your eye just tells you that doesn't look right because normally if you look at a series of six or seven different people's profile pictures, they'll be really different. And they're, they're just too similar and that's what gives it away. And that's so interesting, fascinating. Although I have to say, I think there might be a new fashion trend of Armani Gucci, <laughs> you know, mutant glasses uh, coming our way. But no, that was incredibly fascinating. I have not heard anybody go into that amount of detail about how we identify these AI-generated images. I suppose things could still be much worse in the future uh, where they become so realistic that these kinds of tools of detection are not going to be available to us anymore. But I wanted to also get your thoughts on some of the other tactics that you describe in your investigation. Uh, one major one that you alluded to earlier and, and, and I mentioned is this use of locals to write articles. And this is a pretty new tactic for content production, at least compared to 2016, where um, a lot of the content that we saw the IRA put out, you know, had a lot of misspellings or non-colloquial English. And that was a bit of a giveaway that these were not Americans in the case of the United States. But this tactic, we've seen the Russian intelligence services test elsewhere. Of course, in Africa, there's been quite a few instances and examples now of this sort of proxy uh, franchising of disinformation by using local actors. Can you talk a little bit about why this particular tactic seems to be emerging as one of the evolutions of the operations? Sure. I mean, it, it seems to be a reaction to the last seven or eight takedowns we've seen of IRA-linked activity. And something we, we will come on to is the fact that it's really a double-edged sword for an operation in, in that some ways it seems to be a, a clever way to hide, but in some ways it's actually a real risk that the operation is taking. But it, it seems that there are, a, there are a couple of pieces of thinking behind it. One is that, as you said, the, the Internet Research Agency often gave itself away with its linguistic errors. And they were very specific linguistic errors that are characteristic of, among others, native Russian speakers, because the grammar of Russian is, is geared somewhat differently to the grammar of English. And so something we've seen progressively over the last few iterations of, of IRA-linked takedowns is that they've been trying harder and harder not to write their own content anymore. So, for example, there was a takedown in October 2019 of um, about 50 accounts on Instagram, which were linked to the IRA. And anything longer than two sentences that those accounts were posting, they were copying from elsewhere. They were just taking it off Wikipedia or off other people's social media posts. 
And these were accounts which are masquerading as Americans, but which were traced back to Russia. And it looks like what they were trying to do was avoid making language mistakes by avoiding posting any original language. Their quality control wasn't great, so so their short posts, they seemed to be writing themselves. And on those, even in two sentences, they would give themselves away. Uh, they'd be unable to use the words ah and the idiomatically. They'd be unable to, to phrase a question correctly. So then the next step was in February this year, people associated with the IRA actually went to Ghana and they hired unwitting activists to start posting about racial issues in the United States. And that seemed to be both an attempt to avoid this problem of having to write their own content, and it gave the operation something to hide behind. Because one of the other things which had given away operations in the, in the past was that they were running fake accounts. And if you like, the fake accounts were the face of the operation. And so as soon as anybody managed to establish that this is a fake account, the operation is blown. This was the days before GAN-generated faces were really being used, so the, um, the operations sometimes steal other people's profile pictures. That makes you look convincing, but as soon as somebody works out that's a stolen profile picture, you've given yourself away because your facade is a persona which doesn't exist. One way to get around that problem is to give yourself a facade of a persona of a person who really does exist. You hire somebody to, somebody to be your front person, and so if anybody else comes investigating, they look at the profile picture and think, well, actually, that's, that's a unique picture. And maybe this person is a verified user. Maybe the same person is on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and half a dozen other channels as well. If you're looking at the front person, then everything about them genuinely adds up because they are a real person. The trick is that they're being employed by somebody who's deceiving them as to their ends. So it looks like that combination of trying to avoid the language errors and giving themselves a believable persona so that anybody who comes checking will reach, if you like, the first barrier and think, you know, actually, that's a real person. They're, they're clearly a journalist who's doing their job. Nothing to see here. Now, the flip side to that, and something which we're actually seeing unfold as we speak, is that every unwitting person who is co-opted by an operation becomes a witness to how that operation was working. And something we've seen since um, Facebook announced the takedown and since we did our reports on the takedown is there's been a surge of journalists who have been interviewing the freelancers who were co-opted and fooled by this operation and finding out all kinds of details about how it worked, including cases where some of the freelancers were saying, I pitched this story to the operation and they wouldn't take it, which made me think, hang on, that's, that's a strange political bias or where the operation was putting in really heavy editing and taking out significant content, um, which changed the political bias of a piece. There's evidence there of the way that they were using PayPal. There's evidence there of the, of the email addresses they were using. Because the, these people who are co-opted by the operation quite often have been shocked and horrified by, by what was done to them, by the way they were fooled. They have no interest in covering up what the operation was doing. And they have quite a lot of interest in revealing what it was doing. And so what this operation has done, it has left quite a few people behind who are both probably quite embarrassed and angry about what's been done to them. They're journalists, they're writers, they're investigators, and they're storytellers. So this operation has left behind a long trail of people who are now actually exposing exactly how it worked in all the detail. And that's something that, for investigators, is a really, really rich trove. To have the actual email addresses 
that this operation was working from, for example, is, is a real gift to an investigator. So there are ways in which co-opting unwitting people can make an operation look more impregnable, but it's really opening up a vulnerability as well. So one of the things I found really interesting and discouraging about the use of freelance writers as a journalist is how how the writers talked about their own work. Uh, one of them gave a quote to The Guardian saying, essentially, you know, that they were sort of just trying to get out there and get paid for what they wanted to do, that the editors that they worked with at this operation were actually better than some other editors they'd worked with, that they were paid faster. And then I think the most discouraging quote was, I'm a freelance writer, I'm used to being taken advantage of. And then another writer has said that he essentially took the work, you know, thought that the operation was that the, the front was a little odd, but took the work because he'd been laid off because of the pandemic and, and needed the money. So I wonder, I mean, to what extent does this scheme of hiring freelancers work because of the precarious economic situation faced right now by a lot of people? Could you pull this off in the same way, you know, in a situation where journalism as an industry was doing better and people were more economically secure? I think it was very definitely targeting vulnerability. And there are I mean there there are really heartbreaking stories out there. I mean so some of the some of the social media posts that these particularly the the the, the novice writers, the inexperienced ones who hadn't been published before, the the enthusiasm about their posts when they're saying this is my first paid out article ever, please help amplify it and support me. I mean, your heart goes out to them. It's like, what a, what a horrible position to have been put in. And it, it really is exploitation. It's exploitation of vulnerable people. It certainly benefited from you know, the fact of COVID, the fact of lockdown, the, the difficulty it is being a journalist. It certainly targeted inexperienced journalists particularly. And I'm thinking particularly of the, um, the ad on Upwork, which was there recently, where they were specifically advertising for the cheapest freelancers. So they, you know, they weren't going for people necessarily with, with long-established reputations. That I think they were actually targeting inexperienced writers and new writers because I suspect that way you get somebody with less experience and who's less likely to say, hang on, this doesn't make sense. So it, it was really exploitative. And I, I think it was particularly good at getting people because they were offering relatively good money for not too much work and at a varying degree of editorial intervention. So some people said that none of their pieces got edited. Some said that the, the more political pieces were heavily edited and skewed. But it would certainly be an attractive prospect for a freelance. But that is also the nature of, of starting out as a journalist. It, I mean, it's really tough now, but it, it's never actually been a bed of roses. So, so, you know, for any freelance starting out on a writing career, this is what I did 20 years ago. If you get somebody emailing you and saying, hey, we want to pay you good money for a piece and we won't edit it too much and we're happy to come back for more, you'd want to have a really good reason not to take it. So, so it, I mean, it's definitely exploiting people who are vulnerable right now, but it's also exploiting the nature of writing as a career. People who are starting out and don't have a name for themselves, of course they're going to want to make a name for themselves. And the only way you do that is to get published. So I think that, I mean, it would be great to see a restructuring of the industry of journalism so, you know, so the guys could actually get paid properly and have an occasional night's sleep. But fundamentally, I think as long as you have 
people who want to make a name for themselves as a writer, you're going to have people who are going to want to work for anyone who'll publish them. And so that that'll be a that'll be a long term consideration, which means that the response. I mean, partly, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Journalism is in a financial crisis, and that is a big problem. But also, it's partly about awareness for people who are just entering the market. Are are there red flags that they might be looking out for? Yeah, absolutely. So we're discussing then the you know the impact of the the work on these journalists, particularly who were sort of taken advantage of. One of the interesting things is that we now have these human faces to put on sort of as victims of the operation. We know who they are, but on the other side, in terms of the people who were actually reading this content, um, you note in the report that the following of the pages was very small. There are only about 14,000 followers in total across all the different pages, which is far, far fewer than the IRA managed to gather in 2016. So what do you make of that? A couple of points there. I mean, first, you're right. The, the total following of the two pages was around 14,000. And the two pages, one was in English, one was in Arabic because peace data worked in both languages. Actually, if you look at the figures, it's about 13,900 were on the Arabic page and there were a couple of hundred followers of the English page. So, so the, I mean, the gap in terms of English language coverage is even more extreme. The, the, um, even the figure 14,000 very much flatters the, the, the success that the English page had. That's really indicative of I mean, how far we've all come from 2016 and how much pressure info operations like this have now been put under. Because if you think back to 2016, 2015, 16, when, when the IRA was in its heyday, nobody was really looking for it. There was no real suspicion that this was actually a thing. And so they could totally get away with making very aggressive, very in-your-face accounts, very edgy, really, really troll-like, but witty and funny and ironic and and frankly entertaining to read and they built up big followings on twitter i think their their most high impact account tennessee gop had about 135,000 followers by the time it was taken down on facebook black matters us had about 330,000 so they had really substantial followings they were very edgy they were very they were very readable they had a lot of personality but they threw caution to the winds tennessee gop was registered to a russian mobile phone number and they somehow got away with it. That's not the kind of thing that would happen now. And and what we've seen with with each iteration of IRA takedowns, it feels like they're having to try harder and harder to hide, or they are trying harder and harder to hide. But the way they're doing it is sacrificing the kind of tactics that would actually build them audience quickly. So, for example, you you can't anymore do what the IRA did back in 2016, which was was place political ads on Facebook in America and pay for it in Russian rubles from Russia. That was a thing back in 2016. It is no longer a thing, right? Facebook has brought in the, um, the, the, the political advertising rules, which means that you can't just throw money around and build yourself an audience quickly by buying it. So you have to go for organic growth if you're operating from Russia and trying to target the United States. If you're going for organic growth, that's hard work. I mean, I remember what it was like when I was just starting out on Twitter. It felt like it took forever to get to 100 followers. And that's me being a real person who has actual real friends. If you're a fake persona who doesn't have friends in the first place, and you have to try and get followers simply by earning them, simply by posting organic content, 
that's much harder work and that takes a lot of time for anybody. That's not, not specific to information operations. Um, but particularly if you're a fake persona, then it's hard. And then on top of that, if you think that the amount of time that the IRA gave itself in 2016, it decided in April 2014 to target the November 2016 election. So they gave themselves two and a half years to build up this operation and to build up the personas. The Peace Data website was set up in December last year. The Facebook pages were only set up in May this year. So they were taken down when they were only three months old. That makes a big difference to, to disrupt an operation that early. It means it's, it's still very much an audience building phase. And so what's happened is that not only you know, are there far more defensive policies in place across the platforms and there are more researchers looking out for this kind of stuff, but also there's a much better infrastructure in place to try and track down these operators early on. And if you think about the way this exposure happened, the FBI, it looks like, found the website. They went to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and said, hey, we found this. We think it's connected to the IRA. Each of the platforms did its own thing and did their own takedowns at different times. And all that's in the space of, at most, a few weeks. Again, that's the kind of thing which would not have happened back in 2016. And so there, there's, an un, there's a broad understanding in the community that this kind of cooperation needs to happen. And then once you had the takedown, there's been brilliant reporting by a dozen different journalists on exactly how this operation worked, who were the people who were writing for it. A lot of the people who were writing for it have come out, they've been interviewed. And one of the fascinating things about this week was actually reading the mainstream media reporting on the takedown was very heartening because it was, it was so nuanced. The, the tone of the reporting wasn't, oh my God, here come the Russians again. The tone of the reporting was, okay, here's another takedown. Let's look at what was different from last time. How have the tactics shifted? Well, how has the strategy changed? And that there was no tone of, of panic or terrifying sensation in the reporting. The reporting was much more, okay, you know, here's a big story. Somebody is targeting the election from abroad again. But actually, they only had 200 followers. Let's look at what was interesting. Well, it's interesting that they were using GAN-generated faces. It was interesting that they were using real people to write for them, but it's also interesting that it didn't work. And so not only do you have a much better network in place across the platforms and law enforcement and the research community who are looking out for this kind of stuff, you actually have a much more experienced press corps who are reporting on it, and they know the kind of questions to answer, and they know the kind of points to look for. And if you put all that together, it makes for a much healthier environment than we had four years ago, or, or even a year ago. So when you put it like that, it all sounds like a, a pretty good news story, right? You know, there, there's this network. It was identified relatively early on. There's coordination not only between the, the among the platforms, but between the platforms and the intelligence community. The press is getting better at this. You know, normally I feel like this is a pretty pessimistic podcast, but that actually sounds almost optimistic. Am I going too far in, in saying that it's kind of a good news story? No, you're not, and it and it you know it feels kind of weird because you know, as you said, for so long this has been such a grim field to be working in. But it really feels with with this takedown. I mean, if if you like the 
the downside of this takedown is actually the stuff we don't know. So we don't know, are there other operations out there? We, you know, we need to keep an eye on all the other threat actors there. There is a potential downside in the fact that in the last four years, a lot more threat actors have caught onto the idea that social media interference is a thing. So, so it's not, you know, it's not that the problem is solved and we can all go and get other jobs now. But it really felt this week like almost, almost a turning point that there was, this was genuinely a big story and the press were genuinely interested in it. But they were interested in it not in a sort of sensational and panic-stricken, oh my God, kind of way, but in a much more interested and, and even even amused kind of way. I mean, one, one of the fascinating things that came out of this was that, um, talking about the troll style, if you pronounce the words peace data in a Russian accent, uh, you actually come out with a Russian obscenity. And we're pretty certain that this is not a coincidence. I, I won't say it. I won't say it for you, Ben. <laughs> no, thank, thank you. I am. I will not pronounce it either because that would be embarrassing. But but yeah. So the, this um, this apparent you know human rights startup was actually named for a Russian swear word. And what's fascinating is that the the Ghana takedown of an IRA operation back in March this year claimed that it was a, a human rights NGO. And the acronym for its name was also a Russian swear word. So there, there are these fascinating little nuances in there. But the great thing is that you're actually getting the reporting picking up on that. Because if, if you, and it's really important because if you think about information operations, there's all, there are two different ways they work. There, there's the immediate impact on the people they're actually targeting. But then there's the meta impact on everybody who thinks, oh my God, information operations are really terrifying and there's nothing we can do to stop them. And it's really felt that, that for the last couple of years, you know, a, a drum that I've been banging is keep calm and look at the evidence. Yes, there are operations which, which go really viral and are really big, but there are plenty which don't. And it's really important to be able to tell the difference between the two. And, and it felt like with this takedown this week, that nuancing was there. There was interest in the takedown. There was amusement at its name. There was very solid reporting on the way it had targeted individuals and co-opted them into the operation. But there was also a realistic assessment of how much impact this had actually had. And if you have an operation which only has 200 followers in English, and I think the biggest amplification any of its posts on Facebook got was about 250 likes and on twitter the account that they were running there their main account had about 3,000 followers those are not the kind of numbers that tell you that this was a viral campaign and so it, it was actually really heartening to see how this one played out the, the the final point is if you think about the first generation of ira accounts tennessee GOP, gop and black matters us and and all the hundreds of other assets they had they were taken down basically the September after the 2016 election. These peace data assets were taken down the September before the 2020 election. And, and just that fact alone means that we're in a much healthier place than we were four years ago. So it, it does actually feel like this has, been, this has been a hopeful sign. Thanks, Ben. 
I'm going to put a little wrench in this uh, more more of a sunny, optimistic picture to take us back to our usual MO on the podcast of, <laughs> you know, pure darkness and cynicism. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but, you know, actually, this is a question that I think about a lot um, when it comes to impact and our ability to keep up with these evolving tactics. And, you know, in this investigation, it's a good... It's a good news story, I think, as Quinta said, because it worked. Like the process worked. You know, there was coordination, there was information sharing between the private sector and our governments. Everybody kind of picked up, turned on, and got it done very quickly. But, you know, my question to you, and this is a bit of an unanswerable question, perhaps, is we still don't really know how many of these things are out there. You know, this is one instance that got picked up on. I have no idea how the FBI or the NSA found peace data. And now it's really hard for me not to say the Russian swear (laughs) word every time I say that. But, you know, I just keep wondering, you know, are there like hundreds of these things out there, thousands more? Even if this one specific operation was detected early, it didn't have a lot of followers, doesn't seem like it had much of an impact. You know, all the processes work. How many times can we even estimate, you know, is this really the tip of the iceberg, you know, of a much bigger problem? And I think that is the crux of the of the matter. You know, I have no evidence from about to say, but, you know, just knowing how the Russians do these things, and I've done them for, you know, a very long time, obviously starting in places like Ukraine and then expanding their operations in Africa and other parts of the world, where they perceive it to be perhaps less risky and easier, is I've been convinced for a long time that they've been infiltrating um, exactly through these sort of local actors, all kinds of groups online, because this is kind of the bread and butter of how the KGB used to do things, you know, your basic covert ops, you know, you infiltrate the civil rights movement back in the 1960s. Now there's um, known evidence that they did this. And that's, of course, how the FSB and the GRU do their operations today. That's really, you know, their MO. Um, And I've been wondering for a long time, you know, how much is happening that we just don't know about at all. And so we can point to, you know, this one example where everything worked as it should and all the precautions and measures we set up and all the funding we've invested and all the skill sets we've built around being able to do this kind of research really came together as it should. Uh, but I still keep wondering, you know, what is the bigger picture here? And will we ever really get to see that bigger picture? I mean, do you have any sense of that at all? I think that's an absolutely fair question. And I won't take the glib route of saying, well, we don't know what we don't know. But you're right. The, the trend we have seen since particularly since 2017, is you know, a lot of people out there have got the impression that you can throw an American election just by doing some light social media trolling. And there's an awful lot of people out there who would love to be able to throw the American election. So I think we've, you know, we've definitely seen a proliferation of threat actors over the last few years. And, and it's not just the American election. You know, there are plenty of countries which have elections of their own, and there are threat actors who would like to mess with a lot of them. We, we exposed a Russian attempt to interfere in the UK election last year, for example. So, so you're absolutely right that there is a much more varied palette of threat actors than there used to be, a much more varied cast of them. And we don't 
know what undiscovered operations are out there. Um, and, and so absolutely, we, we need to keep sharpening our skills. We need to keep on finding and exposing this kind of operation because there will be more out there and they will come back. They, I mean, we've seen the IRA, I think, get taken down eight times now. The Facebook statement the other day said that they've now done 100 takedowns since the first ones in, in 2017. So threat actors are here to stay. And I think we have to assume that online information operations are here to stay. So in a sense that the good thing is, I mean, it is good that this particular piece data operation got taken down. But there is an important factor that the system worked well this time and that there was calm reporting on it. There was a calm, there was much closer to a calm understanding of, okay, this is what it is and this is how it works and this is how it didn't work. And the other thing, which is what helps me sleep at night and not just sort of curl up into a little ball and start whimpering, is that it is actually a lot harder to run a large-scale information operation than I think most people tend to assume. And particularly if you're thinking something which is large-scale enough to fundamentally change the dynamics of a democratic event in a large country, or even a small country, you know, a country with millions of people in it, many of whom are not actually on social media. If you think about the scale of impact you would need to have, sure, if it's a very, very tight election, any, any tiny impact can make a difference. But if you think about the mechanics of you know, creating a fake account, that's relatively easy on any platform to create one fake account. Okay, it's a fake account. It doesn't have any real friends. You can post anything you like from it, but if it doesn't have any friends and it doesn't have any followers, who's going to see it? And something we saw with the, the attempt to interfere in the UK election last year was that they started off by creating fake accounts on Reddit and Twitter and posting. And as far as I can tell, nobody actually saw it because they didn't have any genuine followers. And so then you start thinking, all right, that's just for one account. What happens if you create 100 accounts or 1,000 accounts? Well, then it becomes even more challenging. You can get them all to follow each other. But if they're all fake accounts, then, then still no human being is going to see it. So what do you do then? Well, you have a few options. Maybe you pay for advertising, but that's getting harder. And if you're paying for advertising, you're immediately sending up a signal that, hey, here's somebody who's putting money into pushing a particular story. Or you pay for a whole load of fake followers, so you get a lot of followers very fast. But again, if they're all fake followers, then still, there's no actual real people seeing it, which is, which is certainly not to argue that it can't be done. And we have all seen various very effective information operations which clearly had real people who are following them. But I, I think it is harder than people tend to appreciate to run that kind of thing at scale. And, and I always go back to my first days on Twitter. You know, it took forever to get my first 100 followers. And that's when it's a real person doing it. An information operation who, which is having to do that time and time again with lots and lots of new assets, it's going to have to work hard at it. And if it's in a situation where the platforms and researchers are looking out for it and they're going to blow the whistle on it, get it taken down, knock them back to square one, then it's not you know, the silver bullet that will kill, kill any election the, the way that some people seem to think it is. And so ultimately, we, you know, we have seen in the last couple of years, there have been takedowns of networks which had millions of followers. And that genuine, you know, those generally do happen. We've also seen takedowns of networks which had almost no followers at all. So one of the things we need to do is get better at assessing quickly, okay, 
yes, it's an information operation. How effective is it? What, what ways do we have to measure? Is it on one platform or many platforms? Is it only getting picked up by one community or many communities? Is it not getting picked up by any communities at all? We need to be able to make that kind of fine and nuanced judgment call each time we come across a new operation. And just bear in mind that just because an information operation exists doesn't mean they're actually any good at it. They may be. It may be a very high impact operation which needs to go down straight away because it has the potential to have a real impact. It may also be, you know, a bunch of a thousand fake accounts, all of which are following each other, none of which are following, <laughs> which are followed by any real people, and so it's effectively, you know, shouting into a vacuum. All right. On that note, uh, hopefully not shouting into a vacuum. Ben, thank you so much for joining us during what I'm sure is a truly crazy time. It was great to have you on. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pachihowell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.